Good morning. Today we're reading from Revelations chapter 8 and 9. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. Chapter, chapter 9. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had, the tails, they had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, that is, destroyer. The first woe is past, two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. 
and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads which they inflict injury, with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Why did you guys choose to do this book? <laughs> oh, Alex, Jenna, thank you so much for uh, reading just all of that. So I feel... Um, I just want to begin with like a, just a bit of a, of a per, like where I'm at in terms of what we just read, um, and just how I'm feeling. I all I told the like the team this morning as we were getting ready for this service um, that I feel just like a ton of anxiety about this passage. I think that it's about this passage, and I don't normally feel that way when I'm prepping a sermon or when we're getting ready for a service. And the weirder is normally the better for me. I would like things to be strange. I think that's a fun place to do. Um, church from, because people often have expectations that they bring to a text, and so then to unravel those expectations and to come at it a different way feels refreshing. But this one feels just heavy and just dark, and so much so, I was, uh, like last night, I don't, this, again, this is not a thing that normally happens to me, last night I had multiple anxiety dreams as I was like, I think regarding this, one, I showed at the church, and there was like just like a thousand people here. And then someone else was, like, scheduled to preach, but no one knew that. And so that was, like, the dream. And then the second dream I had is I was back in high school theater. So that's how you know where my, like, just and brain is. It might have to do with that yesterday we were cleaning out our basement. I just listened to music that I listened to in high school the whole time. So it was, like, a lot of emo, which probably both together made this moment what it is. Now, I say all of that, not to engender sympathy, though. That would be great. Uh, but mainly to sort of preface like the difficulty of these kinds of passages. I have a doctorate in theology, and yet it still does that to me. It still leads to those kinds of places of this elusive language complicated and is difficult. In the years, in so much of our history, people have argued that they have exact understandings of these moments. That overcomplicated, or that's, a, that's an overestimation of their own opinion of this text that is too complicated for such opinions. And so in light of that, I thought just the goal of today, what are we doing with a text like this? How do we handle something that is this tricky? And it's not just other passages that you'll read in the biblical story that will make you have moments like this, or at least moments that seem to contradict who Jesus is, moments that seem 
to contradict the way we understand the God of love of the Bible. So what do we do with these moments? So to help us just like answer that question to get into the text, here's our strategy for today. First, I just want to look at how do we read Revelation? How do we read this moment? So take a big view of the text, a big view of what we're doing. And then once we can kind of understand how we read it, we'll go to the next level, which is what is it saying to us? What is this message? What is the intention of this passage towards us? And then the final thing we'll look at is what do we do with it? What is it meant to leave us with? As modern followers of Jesus in this moment, in this era, what are we supposed to be left with as we read this passage? What should it lead us to? So those are the three things that we're going to try to do today. Let me pray for us. So I think we need, I need some help as we dive into those things, and then we'll get into it. Holy Spirit, would you be with us? Would you take the words of this moment, the words of this message, the things that we hear, the like, images that we receive, and would you do what you always do? Turn them into something living. Would you invite us into your presence, a place that is defined by love, despite the fact that this feels so complicated and so different than that? Would you give us a big imagination for who you are, what you're doing in the world, and what that means for us? God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. So to begin with, how do we read this passage? I think that Revelations 8 gives us a bit of context that's important for beginning to break into this moment. In Revelations 8, verse 3 through 5, John, who is the revelator, who is seeing these visions, receives a vision. And he says, another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on a golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, in an earthquake. Now this establishes some important context for us and some important motivation about what's happening in the book of Revelation. And that is this, that Revelation is written to a people who are praying for justice. Whatever we understand about the book of Revelation, that is maybe the most important thing, is the social location of the people who long for the message of Revelation and who are receiving the message of Revelation. They are a people who have been systematically marginalized in the empire of Rome. Most early followers of Jesus come from the Jewish community, and the Jewish community had been conquered by Rome, which was one empire after Greece, which was one empire after Persia, which is one empire after Babylon. So you have a community that has suffered substantial loss at the hands of large empires. And then the Christians who come out of that Jewish community are even smaller group of people, people who are convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they choose, despite what the kingdom of Rome around them is saying, and despite what their Jewish religious friends and rabbis and teachers are saying, to believe that Jesus is the hero of the story. And so they are even further marginalized and excluded from their social life. 
It was difficult for Christians to participate in the market. It was difficult for Christians to participate in political life. It was difficult for Christians to do very normal, basic things like buy homes or start businesses because to do so put them in conflict with Rome and often their other religious settings and heritages. And so Revelation is written to a people who are experiencing this kind of marginalization. And that theme runs throughout the book of Revelation. In this one, it's people praying for justice, and the prayers make it to God, and then it's like collected like a worship service in a bowl. In Revelation 5, we see a similar image, where it's the tears of the saints are collected in a bowl. In Revelation um, 6 and 5, you see like those who have suffered actual loss are gathered around the altar, crying out, how long? God, will you tarry? How long will you wait to rescue us? So if we're looking for like a character, a group of people who are present in the book of Revelation, it is these people who are witnesses or martyrs, those who suffer, those who pray and cry out for justice. And that is the recipients of the book of Revelation. And I think it's very important for us to understand. The Bible, though we believe it is for us, was not written to us. And that really shapes how then we interpret the Bible and how we work through difficult moments in the Bible. The book of Revelation was written to a people who longed for justice and needed justice. I often, I think, struggle to talk about God's justice And I think the reason, this is for me, I'm not trying to project this onto you, this is for me as I reflect on myself. I think sometimes the reason I struggle to talk about God's justice is the truth is I rarely need God's justice. I rarely need to be rescued. I rarely need to be delivered. I rarely suffer under the boot of an empire. That's rarely the story of my life. And so when I read tales about justice in Scripture, sometimes it feels like vengeance or it gets flipped on its head. And I think the problem is that I read it from a position of power, not a position of marginalization. And it just changes it. One of my favorite theologians is a a guy by the name of Miroslav Volf. And he lived through the Bosnian genocide And then comes out the other side somehow believing that the ethics of Jesus lead to nonviolence, which I think is just kind of like an amazing story that you could come out on the other side of that. But he's really critical of Christians, scholars who come to a conviction about nonviolence because they believe that God is never bringing justice because he says this really beautiful thing. He's like, "That's that's the theory of suburban minds. Like, it's easy to believe that if we never experience a reality that would call us to justice, that would require justice. And he says, you need to believe in a God of justice if you've seen hardship or suffering or death like he did in Bosnia. So the context of Revelation matters. It is written to a people who deeply need justice and to cry out and pray for justice. It's not vengeance literature, it's justice literature. That leads to the second thing that we need to know about the book of Revelation is that it is written to a people who are praying and it is written in the language of prayer and worship. 
The language of Revelation is prayerful language. It's imaginative language. It's like the Psalms. All week I've been meditating on Psalm 18, where the psalmist says, the cords of the grave coiled around me. Does he mean literally that the coils of the grave coiled around him? No, it's a metaphor for the experience of death or the experience of suffering around him. And he declares that God rescued him with thunderous applause. That's imaginative and prayerful language. It's the language that we sang this morning. It's the language that we pray when we are in need. And the book of Revelation is written in prayer language. It's the language of people who long for justice, who desire justice, and who imagine justice pouring out on the world. That word, pouring, that's a metaphor to describe what kind of justice people long for. Uh, New Testament scholar Michael Gorman, who wrote a bu- uh, just a brilliant book on, the, on Revelation, I think we have one more copy out there if anybody wants it, said this, Revelation should be understood as portraying symbolically what God actually with divine performative utterance. Meaning, how does God tend to do things in the world? Well, God speaks things into existence. God delivers his son, who is his word. But all throughout Revelation, you have deeply symbolic language. A couple of weeks ago, we compared it to uh, Pablo Picasso's painting of Guernica, which portrays, in artistic form, a very real battle in Guernica. It's two different ways of looking at a similar moment. It is full of symbols that evoke in us something. And the book of Revelation is like that. It is deeply symbolic. It's language of justice. It's language of hope. It's language of suffering. It's language of need that makes its way into the book. That language is important because that symbolic language, that worship language, helps give to the followers of Jesus a different imagination for the world than the one that they've inherited around them. This story takes place in Rome, and we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, that Rome is a place of deeply contested worship, meaning that everything in Roman life is about worship. The emperors believe they should be worshipped as a god. They would literally put that on the money. The phrase, Jesus is Lord, is actually stolen from Roman worship of Caesar, which is said Caesar is Lord, right? So there's this like contested worship that's happening in the life of Rome. And all around a Christian, you would see worship images, liturgies, you could say, stories and songs that declared Rome was a kind of power that brought peace to the world. Rome was a kind of power that brought justice. Rome was a kind of power that brought salvation. Rome was a kind of power that held your fears, your chaos at bay, and gave you a life of flourishing. That's one story that exists in the ancient world, and Christians are trying to declare a different story. No, no, no. Rome is actually a a monster. It is an evil empire that is opposed to the way of Jesus, that Christians believe in a different kingdom, a different world order. We live a different ethic in the world. And so the symbolism and the worship language of the book of Revelation, in some ways, it becomes like a, a political worship song to push against Roman stories. To ask who really has power in this world, who is really worthy of worship. 
in this world? Who is at the center of this world? Who holds it all together? And Christians declare, oh, it's God, and all other things are lesser than that. So the context of Revelation, it's a people who long for justice, who pray and worship, and it's written in prayer and worship language. Second, Revelation provides a different vision of the world than Rome's vision of the world. The word revelation is Greek apocalypsis, and we think about apocalypse and we think that means um, destruction. We think that for good reason. That's always what it's portrayed as in movies or television. But apocalypsis means to unveil something. Like to pull back the curtain to, to see a different vision of something. And the book of Revelation is doing that for us. It is pulling back the curtain of a world that for us seems very normal, and it's trying to show us, oh, there is something else happening under the surface of this world. Sometimes it is really beautiful, and sometimes it's very dark, and sometimes you think it's innocuous, and it's actually God intervening, and sometimes you think it's normal, and that actually might be evil. It's trying to say that there is more complicated layers to this thing, and the convulsings of the world around us might mean something more than we often give them credit for. This morning we were praying before the service, and Josh, who led worship, prayed uh, something to the effect of that, that when, when convulsing in culture happens, that's what birthed the Jesus movement, right? Which is what we're reading in this moment, that there's this convulsion, this tension between Rome and the church, and it's what leads to the Jesus moment. And apocalyptic language is meant to show us that, that there's something happening under the surface, and if we would just pay attention, we might see that it looks like tension, and it's actually new birth. My friend um, Seth Richards just published this really beautiful article about apocalyptic thinking, and he said this in it. Thinking more apocalyptically means having a dual vision. For one, how the present institutions and structures are bent towards death, and two, how the Spirit of God is presently interrupting the demons that are animating the systems we've built, but also bringing newness in Christ. The apocalyptic, it, it pulls back the layers of the world around us and shows us that God is at work in places we never expected. And that sometimes the things we trust, the things that we hope, the things that we hold in, they are not as good as we thought they are. This is the key purpose of the book of Revelations. We often want Revelation, or we often approach Revelation in a way that is primarily predictive that it is telling us about what's coming in the future. But Revelation is prophetic. You might be like, well, what's the difference between those two things? And and the difference is is that prophecy is about God's word to God's people now. So the context, the purpose, the intention behind the story of Revelation is actually not to talk about the future. It's to talk about what is happening in this moment now. How do we understand this world? What is the beast of this world? What are the creatures of this world? What are the evil empires of this world? Not some future distant to come world. It is prophetic. It is showing us what is happening right here, 
right now, helping us to see more clearly. So then with those things said, what does this passage specifically begin to reveal to us? What is pulled back and given us a vision of? Well, first things, this passage, or chapter 8 and 9, reveal to us that God is on a mission to end evil and injustice. There's these big images that we see kind of immediately in passage 8 and 9. In 8, verse 6 through 12, you get these images of plagues. Hail, blood in the water, sun was darkened. And then in 9, 1 through 10, you get an image of a locust plague. Now, if we're thinking broadly, that should, uh, that should like tickle our brain. Is that a phrase? Tickle your brain. <laughs> so I feel like I shouldn't have said it. It should remind you of something. But where else do we see plagues in the Bible? Exodus. Exodus. These are the same plagues, actually, from the story of Exodus. And Exodus is a, a very important moment in the Bible, not only because of the moment that it like fulfills in the Old Testament, but because as soon as the people of Israel are rescued from Egypt in the Exodus story, that moment of liberation from an evil empire, Egypt, becomes the paradigm of rescue throughout the rest of the biblical story. The prophets, long after that, will long for and pray for a bigger Exodus story in which the massive and bigger empires of injustice and evil are overthrown, in which human hearts are healed because of their participation in those systems, in which the world and all that we prayed for this morning is undone. An exodus that is bigger and better, but foreshadowed in the exodus from Egypt. In that moment of the exodus, we see God confronting empires, false gods, every plague corresponds to a god of Egypt, right? It's hitting more than one level of deliverance. And in that moment, we see God confronting an empire, delivering his people and calling them into what? Oh, a promised land, a new kingdom. And so in this moment, when we see these plagues again, it should trigger something in our minds to be like, oh, this is pointing us towards the same kind of rescue that is talked about in the Exodus literature. A moment when God's going to confront some empire. God's going to overflow some false gods. God's going to deliver his people. But now it will be even bigger than before. Revelations presents a new Exodus. A moment where God is rescuing the entire world from an empire and an enemy that is more consistent and reoccurring and maybe even bigger than Egypt. Now as we hear that, I think we have a temptation. I have a temptation. I should say this. Speak for myself. I have a temptation to be like, how is God doing that? Is this how God is doing that? And I think these passages do not declare to us how God is rescuing the world. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it this way, these passages, they are a stylized way in which the effects of the seven trumpets are described ought to remind us of what John's first readers certainly know. 
He wasn't talking about one-third of the earth, the seas, and so on. He was talking about the necessary work of radically upsetting the human system by which millions have been enslaved and degraded. It's intended to show us that a little modification will not be enough. Only major surgery will do. A few weeks ago, quoted our friend Josh Butler, who's come and spoken here, if you've been with us for a while. And he has this very beautiful phrase that God is committed to getting the hell out of earth. That's the chief mission of God, is to get evil out of earth, to get the hell out of earth. God is committed to ending the reign of evil and to deliver his people. And God is committed to all that is required in that, to get the whole thing out of earth. That includes all parts of evil, the systems that we have built, the empires that we have developed, the spiritual forces that are unleashed in the world around us, all pieces of it God is committed to. That's what's being communicated in this moment. That God is committed to the rescue of all things. The second thing that the book of Revelations reveals is sort of the problem with this rescue mission. If you jump down in the second passage to 9, verse 20 through 21, we see this. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by the plagues, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. we are confronted by a difficult truth that runs throughout the book of Revelation and the whole Bible, which is that the judgment of the world is caused by us. The other day at House Church, we were reading the book of Revelations, walking through it, and kind of wrestling with some of the difficult language that appears And someone said, they were like, how do you discern the difference between what humans have done to the world and what God is judging the world with? And I think you don't, actually. We live in the world that we built, so to say. We live in the house that we have made. The story of the Bible... It's first and the first thing that Revelation reveals that God is on a rescue mission to deliver us from evil. But the second story that runs underneath why do we need to be rescued? And it's because humans have unleashed hell onto the world. Hell is not a place that God made, it's not a fire that God throws onto the earth. It is a blaze. God just doesn't need to throw fire. We did that just fine. This is the reveal, right? The apocalyptic reveal of the book of Revelation is that we have lived and we live in the world that we have made. That the forces that we experience and the forces that we face are the empires that we have established out of the things we worship, out of the works of our hands. As my friend Seth says, it reveals that animating our systems, our systems, is... 
idols of gold and silver, bronze, stone, and wood. We pull back to the surface and we see ourselves. This is where this chapter ends. You have this reveal that like at the end of all of it, what is the issue? And it's like, oh, we worship these gods and we get the world that we want. We're like the prodigal son. We demanded our inheritance and now we get to live with our inheritance. And chapter 9 ends in that place with big looming reveal and then sort of a question mark like, well, dang And honestly, I do not like that pause. Feels uncomfortable to read that moment in the book of Revelation and be like, where's the resolution? Where is the hope? And, and at a personal level, like as we're working through this together, like I want with everything in my being to resolve the tension this moment creates for us. I want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about how Jesus heals us. I want to talk about how Jesus is the great liberator. I want to talk about how Jesus calls us home. I want to talk about the Spirit's work of unraveling empires. I want to talk about all of those things. And yet, that's actually not where this passage goes yet. We get there. But not yet. And I think we need to pause in the same way the book of Revelations pauses. It lives in the tension of that revelation, and I think we also need to live in the tension of that revelation to pause here and wrestle with what has just been shown to us. We are a people who pray for justice often, and like in this story, the prayers, they come back down to earth, and what's come back down to earth in this moment is maybe a mirror. The author, James uh, who wrote this beautiful book, The Fire Next Time, about being black in America in the 1940s and 50s. He uses throughout the book, The Fire Next Time is a, it's an apocalyptic image that comes specifically from the language of the flood in Genesis chapter 9. And in the book, he does this just beautiful job wrestling with what it looks like to be black in America and to have hope and to wrestle and to struggle, and to believe in healing, and yet not know that you're seeing healing, to, to hope for a resolution, and yet not know that a resolution's coming. All of the beautiful tension that we're actually seeing in the book of Revelation, that hold on, that cry for new, that prayer of renewal, it's like the same kind of tension, just in a more modern way. And he ends his book, which is a letter to his nephew, he ends his book with the same kind of moment. In the same kind of language. And I, I just think it's really beautiful. He says this. Whatever goes up must come down. If we do not falter in our duty, we may be able to end the racial nightmare and achieve our country and change the history of the world. If we do not now dare everything, the fulfillment of that prophecy, recreated from the Bible in song by a slave, is upon us. God gave Noah the rainbow sign. No more water, the fire next time. And I love that moment. I, I guess I also hate that moment because it's just so challenging. 
but it captures the tension at the end of this passage. Do we see the world that we have made? Do we see the ruin of our worship? Can we see the idols at the center of our structures and our systems? And can we imagine something else? Everything in me, again, wants to resolve the tension of this question. But I don't think I can yet. I think the challenge of Revelation is the challenge of having something revealed. And so I think we need to sit with the Revelation. Instead of offering a simple resolution, I would just like to point you to the table. Jesus tells us repeatedly that his kingdom is like a table. He calls it the wedding feast of the lamb or the dinner party that the king throws and everyone is invited to. And if in Revelation, and this in this passage of 8 and 9, what we've seen is our own kingdoms basically put on full display, then at this table, this very simple, modest, humble moment, we see the kingdom of Jesus put on display. Kingdom where people are welcomed. Kingdom where there's always space for more. But even the simplicity of this gesture kind of demonstrates the difficulty of it. It's also a kingdom of humility. And so, Missio, with this very simple, very humble demonstration of Jesus' kingdom, I'd like to invite you to it. More than anything else, that's what Revelation does for us. It invites us into the kingdom of the Lamb. A kingdom that works different than the kingdoms of the world. A kingdom that looks different than the kingdoms of the world. One that is so often humble and innocuous and hard to even notice, but one in which actually offers healing. Jesus will never force us to this table. I don't believe that's the way that Jesus works. We can stay in our kingdoms if we want to. But here's the thing, it will feel like hell because it is. And so, Missio, the question for us, just very simply, to resonate, to sit with, to wrestle with, is which kingdom do we want? Which worship do we want? But we can say, whose kingdom do we want? Let's pray. Jesus, today, and um, with difficult images, difficult images and, and strange images and elusive words, we are confronted with just the, a much more complex and deep reality of evil in the world than we often are. 
know, I don't like to sit with that image. I would much rather sit in the triumph of you. I would much rather sit in the victory of you than in the um, reality and pain of injustice in the world. So God, first I just ask that you would help us hold the tension of them, that two things, that they're both true, that there is genuine and real hurt and genuine and real hope. And God, as we sit with the tension of revelation, the tension of our kingdom versus your kingdom, our table versus your table, would you reveal what is really happening in our world? Would we have an apocalypse moment that pulls back the layers and shows us our own participation, our own world, our own hopes, our own trust, not to shame us, not to judge us, but to call us into your kingdom? where we might be known and healed and welcomed. So God, would you do that work in us? Reveal so that we might know healing. In your name we pray. Amen. Missy, when you're ready, I invite you to come to the table. There's elements in the Uh, silver jars. You can take them at the table or take them back at your seats. And then Becca is over here if you would like someone to pray with. Would you continue worshiping with us?